0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we're going to continue our series, The Ten Commandments, with a message entitled, Honoring Father and Mother. So, let's turn in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, as we join Dr. Newfeld now.
1: I'm one of those rare men who had a, a great relationship with his father. He died a number of years ago, but I still miss him. He wasn't perfect, but he was a great father. He both disciplined me and he loved me when I was a boy. I remember him spanking me more than once, but only once do I remember him doing it in anger. He later acknowledged that it had been wrong. When I grew up, dad did what all great dads do. He stopped demanding my obedience, but I sought him out for counsel not once, but many times. I didn't always agree with his counsel, but how I valued his counsel. And I loved being with him. But as I've said, dad was no perfect man. You know, as an example, my dad never could understand why the world didn't just speak German. And my dad was old school through and through. He liked craftsmanship over mass produced things. My dad never liked Canadian culture. You know, for instance, my dad didn't understand why why younger people addressed those who were older by their first names. Such disrespect for the aged was for him the very basis of lawlessness. But in the middle of all of that, dad was a stickler for acting out of conviction and never out of the weakness of the flesh. You know, his insistence that the flesh had to be mastered, well, I saw that in him. Dad was not given to any excess, not that I could see. And Dad was a man who exuded generosity. He he hated the idea of hoarding wealth, and in his personal life, he never spent a cent on something that was not absolutely required. There was other stuff. My dad, inexplicably, for a man who loved all things German, thought the people of Quebec should tell the rest of English Canada where to get off and insist on a distinct society status. You know, I have a sneaking suspicion that it wasn't the German language that he liked so well. It was his ongoing distaste for the English language, a language he had been forced to speak against his will. Hadad yeah, was a culture resister, and I had to live in this culture. So he wasn't perfect, but he was profoundly loving. And when he died, he exhibited such faith in Christ on his deathbed that he, he took my breath away. And I loved the fact that he wrote down his prayers, and I found them after he died. As I say, I have, I have no rose-colored perspective of my dad. He was what he was. prejudices in great moments, but I'm so profoundly grateful to have had him as my father. Now, I say all of this because there was a time in my relationship with him, which I almost drove a wedge between dad and I. I was in seminary at the time, studying in Southern California, and I was taking a class on the personal life of the pastor. And a part of that class was to help the student come to terms with the disappointments they felt with their mothers and fathers. And as I look back on that class now, that that class was kind of a mishmash of things. Some semi-Freudianism mixed with humanism, especially in its ideal that that we needed to come to terms with our own self-actualization. Now, if you know what I'm talking about, you understand. And if not, it's just a long story. I was then writing a paper on the subject, and and I was remembering all the failings of my father which had negatively impacted me. Who but knows how much his cultural denial had negatively impacted me with guilt and a a failure to deal with my own culture. And speaking about guilt, see, I remember both my mom and my dad's story of surviving the Russian Holocaust, starvation of my dad's older brother, and, and the guilt they had labored under. Dad wondered if he had eaten more than his share as a boy. Guilt, yeah, guilt pervade my home. My own guilt, I concluded, had been inculcated into me by mother and father who exuded it. And the more I wrote on this paper, the, the greater my anger against my father was becoming. Clearly, I needed to free myself from his upbringing. You know, one day, while driving to seminary in the morning, I felt my blood pressure boil, a sad excuse I had for a dad. And then I could almost count on one hand the times in which I say this, but I heard God speak that day. That day, it felt like all of heaven thundered and roared in my direction. I heard a voice speaking. The voice simply said, honor your father and your mother. I was staggered at the thought. I had become a lawbreaker. Instead of honoring them, a man who had not only fled communist Russia, but who had through courage and by the gracious hand of God raised me in a country where there was food on the table and love from the hand of the one who put me to bed. I had managed in the wickedness of my thoughts, urged on by an ignorant professor to remember only his sins and curse him for them. Needless to say, I repented deeply and I, and I threw that paper away. Now, for those of you who struggle with your parents, For real and imagined sins, well, however they may be, please, please don't turn me off. Hear me out. Wait until I come to the end of the message and judge for yourself what you should do about the fifth commandment. Now, we've been studying the Ten Commandments, and today we come to the fifth of the ten, the first of the commands that deal specifically with our relationship to one another. So I'm reading Exodus 20, verse 12. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Now, if you've been listening to me through this series, you'll you'll have noticed that I said that the Ten Commandments are the centerpiece of the law of God and that the rest of the law work out the implications of that law in the national life of Israel, the chosen people of God. And so let's find out about what the rest of the law says about parents, about father and mother. Let's start with the book of Genesis 25, verses 8 and 9. There we read, Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah. Now, of course, this is a cave where Abraham's wife, Sarah, already lay buried. Now, the phrase gathered to his people does not mean he was put in a communal tomb. We know that's the case because if you read the passage carefully, you're going to note that Abraham was gathered to his people first And then, after he had been so gathered, only then was he buried in the communal tomb. So in that sense, Abraham had a family in heaven to which he was gathered, and a family on earth who buried him, well, that seems to capture the idea. See, the Bible never speaks about people in an individualistic fashion. It speaks about them as a family unit. Look at it this way. When you ask a modern individual, you know, tell me about yourself, here's what you're likely to find. I'm going to tell you about their job and what they like and dislike and their hobbies and perhaps their education and their skill set and what they think is ultimately important. Perhaps they'll tell you about some aspects of their personality and whether or not they're afraid of heights or whether they're an extrovert or an introvert. See, I remember we used to do those personality profiles in all sorts of places, and and I personally hated them. You know, some of them had you discover whether or not you're a poodle or a Rottweiler or something like that. I thought it was silly. But if you had asked an ancient Jewish person who they were, it wouldn't have dawned on them to define their personality. Rather, they would tell you who their mother and father were of which family they belonged, in which clan they belonged, of which tribe and of the people of Israel. In other words, they would not have dreamt of defining themselves in individualistic terms. That just simply wasn't a part of their life. And furthermore, in those occasions when there was a conversion in Israel, people immediately understood that they were transferring their loyalty to a new people group. That, for instance, is what we have in Ruth's conversion, where she says that not only will Naomi's God be her God, but also that Naomi's people will now be her people. See, let's take it one step further. Not only was ancient Israel to think in terms of family, but they were also to esteem the elderly. Leviticus 19 verse 32 says, "...you shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man..." and you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. See, it's for that reason that parents took a special place of honor in the law. Exodus 21 verse 17 says, whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. And Leviticus 19 verse 3 says, every one of you shall revere his father and his mother. And Deuteronomy 21 verses 18 to 21 says, If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of the city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of his city, this our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard and all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones, for you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. Wow, that's quite a command. So from front to back, the law teaches clearly that one's response to father and mother is a sacred obligation before God.
0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell from Back to the Bible Canada. We believe Bible teaching is critical for God's people, and your support is critical in making the daily Bible teaching program with Dr. Newfeld available on this station. But we know there's times when you may miss the radio program, so we wanna remind you of all the opportunities available for free for your use and convenience. At backtothebible.ca, you can search through a library of messages and series both audio and video with Dr. John, but also learn more about our ministry podcasts, YouTube channels, mobile applications, and print resources. Our desire is to serve you so that the Bible teaching you can trust is available to as many people in as many ways as possible. For more information or to support this Bible teaching ministry, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.
1: In ancient Jewish homes, the primary responsibility for discipleship, well, that was to fall on the parents. They were to teach their children the scriptures, and so they were to teach the scripture in the home. So you get that sense from Deuteronomy 6, verses 49. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So we get a sense from reading this that in Israel, to rebel against your father and mother was also to rebel against the sacred instruction that was to take place in every home. And by the way, I've witnessed that on more than one occasion while I've been in Israel. i stood at the Western Wall at the Temple Mount that many in North America call the Wailing Wall. And I've watched Orthodox Jewish fathers with their sons going to the wall, especially on a Sabbath, Torah in hand, as each boy takes turns reading sacred script, all in the sight of a father who's coaching him both through his prayers and through his reading. Now, witness how this played out in Israel. It's Joseph who takes the leadership in both caring for his aging father, but also in visiting him often, and then taking care to bury him in the cave of Machpelah, next to Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah, and also where Jacob's wife Leah now lay buried. So we see a pattern also in the book of Ruth, that after Ruth was married, Boaz and Ruth both took care of Naomi in her old age to make sure that her grandchildren spent time with their grandmother so as to honor her life. Now, in contrast to that, we see the exact opposite in the sons of Eli. Eli, that is the priest. Samuel 2, verse 12 says, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. And then down to verses 22 and 23, it says, Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? And then down to verse 25, If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. We come full circle now. Back in Deuteronomy, a rebellious son was to be guilty of death, and in reality, actually, we don't know a single incident where that actually happened. The law seems only to operate on a level of a threat to indicate the seriousness of this matter. But in First Samuel, God himself carries out the sentence. And one more word before we move on. The fifth command promises that if one keeps this command, one will live long in the land. Now, a great many Christians misunderstand this. This text does not teach that if you honor your parents, you're going to live to 92, and if you don't, you'll probably die at 52. The text has nothing to say about the lifespan of any individual. Living long in the land means living long in the promised land. If the home is a place where the scripture is taught, and if every generation obeys the mandate of the fifth command, God will allow Israel to remain long in the land. But if they don't, then they won't. Babylonians are going to come and drag them out of their land. That's, that's what the passage means. Now, this is the Old Testament background to this command. Remember, in our study of the Ten Commandments, we noticed that the Ten Commandments were God's universal law, and then the rest of the Old Testament law showed how those Ten Commandments worked out in the national life of Israel, but that still leaves us with a question. Our day is so very different than that of Israel. For one, we're a highly individualistic culture. For another, most homes don't have a rigorous Bible training happening there. And, and finally, the mobility of the modern world makes it quite common for parents and their children to live in very different cities, and in some cases, in different countries. And so, is it reasonable to draw a straight line from the the cultural conditions of ancient Israel to today? And yet, the fifth command remains, honor your father and your mother. Paul quotes that very command in Ephesians chapter 6, 1 to 3. It says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first command with a promise that it may go well with you, and you may live long in the land. So please notice in Ephesians, Paul takes the fifth command and applies it specifically to children. That is, before they reach the age of adulthood. On the basis of the fifth command, he says, which is to honor your folks, children are to work that command out in their obedience to their parents. That is, parents are charged with the care and discipleship of their children. And a part of submission to God is the obedience that children have to their parents. It is required of children that they should do this. However, we do know that just like the New Testament command that's found, for instance, in Romans 13, that we're to submit to governing authorities, we should remember that this command is not absolute. There are, with all the commands of God, a hierarchy of commands. Only God's commands are absolute. See, the Bible does not command children to obey their parents, for instance, if the parents teach their children to steal. The command to remain faithful to God always takes precedence over this command. But in the real world, there's a power imbalance between parents and children. I mean, how are children supposed to resist the evil demands of their parents, for instance? Well, they can't. But rather than redress the imbalance, the Bible remains clear this imbalance between children and their parents is to remain. God has ordained that parents would have authority over their children, not the state, but parents are given this authority. But is this command to obey one's parents a lifelong command? Well, clearly it's not. We know that to be true from the very creation itself. I mean, after the creation of the man and the woman, Genesis 2 verse 24 tells us why it is that God created a man and a woman. The passage teaches, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold to his wife and they shall become one flesh. That is, the authority structure of the parents over their children is broken when a new family unit is formed. Let me give you a little illustration of that. It's the week of our marriage. Kathy and I were, were busy with last-minute preparations for our marriage, and we were practicing not only our vows, but some scripture passages that we were going to quote to one another during the ceremony. And for the life of me, I don't remember any of the details, except that Kathy and I had such a disagreement that I left my wife to be in tears that day. Ah, such is the folly of young men. They don't understand the woman that they will share life with. My dad, knowing that something was afoot, met with me privately and said, what's going on, son? And I said, dad, I'm not going to tell you what's going on. That woman's going to be my wife in just a few days from now. Her relationship to me is closer than my relationship to you. Now, was I wrong to say that? No, I wasn't. It would have been unrighteous for me to console with my father as if he were closer to me than the woman who was to be my wife. And it's always wrong for parents of married children to assume on that marriage relationship. And it's wrong for kids to complain of their wives or their husbands to their parents. And it's wrong for parents to demand things of their married kids. The relationship of obedience is broken when the new family unit is formed. That's the law of God. Now, in our culture, half of all adult children are unmarried. Are they still under their parents? Now, That's a hard question to answer, but I can offer a basic rule of thumb. If you're living under your parents' roof, you gotta obey. And the question now gets asked, but what if I'm 35 years old and I'm still living under their roof? Well, in that case, you've got a choice, don't you, Bubba? I mean, get a job and grow up and move out. That's what I have to say. And so does that mean at some point we're no longer required to keep the fifth command? Well, no. The fifth command did not demand obedience, but rather the honoring of father and mother. To honor them means to show them respect It means that we don't mock them or curse them. It means we show them kindness. It means we speak well of them in public and when they're old and living in a home, we visit them and continue to honor them. Listen, I know there's so much brokenness in our world and I've not answered even half the questions. I haven't dealt with the issue of what we should do with abusing parents and all the horrors that we hear about today. But this much is true. To whatever is possible of us, we are called upon to show honor to mom and dad. Here's a little secret. Long after they're dead, we still honor their memory. For this is right in God's sight. For in doing this, you will live long in the kingdom of God.
0: John, thanks so much. But this brings up a sort of a sensitive question, but what ought children do that have had abusive parents?
1: Yeah, I know it's so easy for me to talk about this, because as I've said, I had a great relationship with both my mom and my dad, uh, and my dad still is one of my heroes. I think, I I, don't, I know that there are a number of people, I mean, just even as adults, when they think about, you know, the relationship that they had with their dad, it's just so much pain involved. And of course, little children are helpless. I mean, what can they do? Um, and then as they get older, it's very easy for us to react and I'm going to say something, I'm going to say, at some point in time, it is important um, as we get older uh, to begin to you know, make a statement. I am going to uh, forgive my mother and my father, and I'm going to do everything that I can uh, to rebuild that relationship. It's not only good for them, it's, it's important for us. I think we, we need it for ourselves.
0: Thanks so much, John, and join us here again tomorrow for more of The Ten Commandments on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. This past month was Back to the Bible Canada's International Ministry Month. So on behalf of everyone at Back to the Bible Canada and our international partners, we want to express our appreciation for the gracious gifts that were given to sustain and grow the impact upon these global Bible teaching efforts. The international ministry programming and resources are sent to our partners every month, ensuring a consistent flow of excellence in trustworthy Bible teaching. And we pray for the opportunity to continue our international pastors Bible teaching conferences really soon. So please continue to pray and continue to consider how you might support these international initiatives. With your continued support or by becoming an international monthly partner, Back to the Bible Canada will serve a global vision the size of our global mission. So call today for more information on international monthly partnership or to offer your gift at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.